a true subject of Jesus' spiritual kingdom will always have a right relationship to the Scripture. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How are true believers in Jesus Christ to properly think about the Word of God and treat the Word of God? Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new 10-part series titled, What Your View About Scripture Says About You. As you'll learn throughout this series in Matthew chapter 5, once you become a believer, you also become a citizen of the kingdom of God. But though you are a citizen, you now have to learn how to live as one who belongs in the kingdom. One of the most helpful and instructive passages in Scripture on just how to do that is found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And as you'll discover, Jesus explains that one of the main authenticators of a true Christian is how he or she responds to the Scripture. Well, Tom, what can we expect to learn as we study through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? You know, Bill, this passage is so helpful because in this paragraph, Jesus really identifies three responses to the Scripture. He first of all says that we have to understand Jesus' own relationship to the Old Testament Scripture. Uh, That's really verse 17. And then he says that we have to believe about Scripture exactly what he believes. And he helps us understand what that is. And then finally, he teaches us that we have to accept his use of the scripture to diagnose our spiritual condition. Because Jesus says you can identify whether you are least in the kingdom of heaven, that is you're a Christian, but you're least, whether you're great in the kingdom of heaven, or whether you're not in the kingdom of heaven at all, based on how you respond to the scripture. So no passage can be more helpful, more insightful, than this one and all that we'll learn from our Lord here. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. Today we begin a new section of Jesus' most famous sermon. We call the Sermon on the Mount, preached somewhere on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was taught immediately to the 12 that he had just chosen that morning to be his apostles, to be his sent ones, his official representatives. Gathered around them was a larger crowd of his disciples, and then there was a large crowd of just the interested and curious and those who'd come to be healed there on that hillside on that day. But it's addressed primarily to his disciples, to us. Now, to make sure that we don't get lost in the details, I want to begin this morning by giving you a brief outline of the entire sermon so you see what the Sermon on the Mount looks like. Here's the structure. First of all, there is an introduction, there's the body of the sermon, and then there's a conclusion. Three parts. The first part is really just introduction. I've called it the citizens of the kingdom. This is who those who belong to Jesus' spiritual kingdom are. Here's how you identify them. And he shows how to identify them by their character in the Beatitudes, those wonderful qualities that we looked at together. If you belong to Jesus' spiritual kingdom, 
then you are described in those Beatitudes. That's who you are. Because of who you are, you and I become salt and light. That's our influence. We become salt in the middle of a decaying world. We become a preservative. We become light in the middle of the darkness, and we talked about that. That's who we are. Those are the citizens of the kingdom. Now that brings us to the the heart of this message, really the body of the sermon in Roman numeral 2. I've called it the righteousness of the kingdom. Once you're in, once you are a citizen, here's how we are to live. Here's how we're to live out life in the spiritual kingdom over which Jesus rules. That begins in chapter 5, verse 17, and runs all the way down through chapter 7, verse 12. Now, I've broken that section down into, into three subdivisions. A, the righteousness of the kingdom is shown in a right relationship to the Scripture. That's the section we begin today. That's essentially the rest of chapter 5. Jesus is going to explain what our relationship to the Scripture should be. We'll look at that today. Then he's going to give six examples of what our relationship to the Scripture should look like. And he ends chapter 5 by summarizing it by saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The second way our righteousness, now that we are in Jesus' kingdom, is expressed has to do with a right relationship to God. This is chapter 6. A right relationship to God. There should be no hypocrisy in our relationship to God. Our prayers, our giving, all of our interaction that have to do with God should be genuine spirituality and not hypocritical, done for God and not for the people around us. We should be undividedly devoted to God. You can't serve God and anything else, Jesus says. When it comes to God, you must be completely devoted to Him. And chapter 6 ends by telling us that we are to have an unwavering trust in God. He will provide for us. He will provide for our needs. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. So chapter 6 has to do with our relationship to God. Chapter 7 has to do with our relationship to others. The first 12 verses of chapter 7. Now that's the body of the sermon. This is how we who are citizens of Jesus' spiritual kingdom are to live. Now that brings us to the conclusion of the sermon. And in the conclusion of the sermon, in the third major division of this sermon, begins in chapter 7, verse 13, and runs down through the end of chapter 7, we have the dangers related to the kingdom. And Jesus specifically identifies three dangers, and they are terrible dangers. The first danger is beware of the wrong entrance into the kingdom. You remember he says, make sure you get the right gate, the narrow gate that leads to the right road that leads to life. Because there are a whole lot of people who find the wrong gate, get on the wrong road, and end up in destruction. Then there's beware of false teachers. This, by the way, is one of the ways you get to the wrong gate and on the wrong road. Beware of false teachers. There will be people who say they love and believe in Jesus Christ who are in reality teaching you complete error contrary to Christ. And Jesus says you better beware. And then he ends his sermon with the warning of the danger of a false profession. 
Those who say, Lord, Lord, and yet live as if he's not. And in fact, don't belong to him and will hear him at the judgment day say, depart from me, I never knew you. So that's the structure of the sermon. Now notice chapter 5, verse 17 through chapter 7, verse 12 is the body of the sermon. Now I want you to see how the body of Jesus' sermon is bracketed. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. You notice he's talking about the Scripture, the Old Testament. Now go over to chapter 7, verse 12. Here's the end of the body of Jesus' sermon. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Do you see that Jesus brackets the, the really the heart of his sermon with this reference to the law and the prophets, prophets, the Old Testament? So the Sermon on the Mount is, in a sense, Jesus' exegesis of how to understand the Scriptures, the Scriptures they had at the time, what we call the Old Testament. Now, the proposition of his message, the main theme of his message, is introduced to us at the beginning of this central section of the sermon. In chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and that's the section I want us to begin to study today. Look at it with me. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished." Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven." Now let me begin by admitting to you that this is a very difficult section of Scripture. In fact, none less than contemporary theologian D.A. Carson writes this, Matthew five seventeen to 20 are among the most difficult verses in all the Bible. There's a lot of confusion about what our Lord means here. But let's start by identifying what this paragraph is really about. Whenever you study a paragraph of Scripture, look to see what the theme is. And one of the primary ways to to identify the theme is to look for repetition. Repetition in words, phrases, or ideas. Now when you do that in this paragraph, immediately you see that there is one clear theme, and you can discern that theme by the repetition. Look at verse 17. The law or the prophets. Verse 18. A letter are a stroke from the law. Verse 19, one of the least of these commandments. Jesus is talking about 
what we call the Old Testament, what they at that time would have called the Scripture, the only Scripture they had. Jesus is concerned that his disciples might come to a wrong perspective about their relationship to the Scripture now that they're his followers. Jesus is going to make some really amazing claims about the Scripture and his own view of Scripture in this passage. Lord willing, we're going to look at Jesus' view of the Scripture in depth next week. But this passage is not about Jesus primarily. This passage is not about his view of Scripture, but what his disciples' view of Scripture should be, what our view should be. Notice how verse 17 begins. It's addressed to his disciples, to us. Do not think. Jesus wants us as his disciples to make sure our own thinking is right. Down in verse 19, the word whoever has to do with his disciples and their response to the law and the prophets. Now, why is Jesus starting here? Well, because he is aware of two dangerous tendencies. One of those tendencies is to think that the Old Testament no longer matters. Now that you're a follower of Jesus, you can essentially abandon it and just listen to him. That's one tendency. The other tendency is for his disciples, and by the way, we see see these same tendencies today, don't we? The other tendency is to copy the external legalism of the scribes and Pharisees to say we need as followers of Christ to keep all of the letter of the law and to do everything it prescribes and essentially miss the whole point of the Old Testament. That's the danger. Jesus was addressing it then. It very much needs to be addressed today as well. So with that background, then, let me summarize for you Jesus' teaching in this paragraph this way. I'm going to summarize it, and then as we unpack it over the coming weeks, I think you will see this theme come out of the exposition as we move forward. Here is a summary of this paragraph. A true subject of Jesus' spiritual kingdom will always have a right relationship to the Scripture specifically the Old Testament Scripture in this context, but to the Scripture as a whole, as we'll see as we move ahead. A true Christian can always be recognized by how he or she responds to the Scripture. But what exactly is a right response? How are we as believers in Jesus Christ to properly think about the Word of God and to properly treat the Word of God? Now, this is such a monumental text that it's going to take a couple of weeks to adequately cover it, but let me lay out a roadmap for you so you know where we're headed, what this passage, chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, looks like. In this paragraph, Jesus identifies for us three responses to the Scripture that should characterize every genuine believer. Three responses to the Scripture. Number one, You must understand Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament Scripture. That's verse 17. Number two, you must believe Jesus' view of the Scripture. That's verse 18. And number three, you must accept Jesus' diagnosis with the Scripture. Because in verses 19 to 20... Jesus says you can identify yourself whether you are 
least in the kingdom of heaven, whether you are great in the kingdom of heaven, or whether you're not in the kingdom of heaven at all, based on how you respond to the scripture. So that's where we're headed in the next couple of weeks. But today, I just want us to consider the first response that we as Christians should have to the Scripture. We must understand Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament Scripture. This is in verse 17. Look at it with me. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, in the first century, we need to start by knowing what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the law and the prophets. In the first century, the expression, the law and the prophets, was shorthand for what we would call the Old Testament. What theologians would call the Old Testament canon. Have you heard that word, the canon of Scripture? That's not like the gun that shoots, C-A-N-N-O-N. It's C-A-N-O-N, the canon of Scripture. The English word canon comes to us through the Latin, but ultimately from the Greek word that actually appears several times in the New Testament. It's canon. Originally, the Greek word meant a straight rod or ruler often marked into units of measurement. Think like our yardstick, a ruler with marks on it indicating units of measurement. Eventually, the word came to be used not only for the ruler itself, but for the series of marks on it as well. So, as a result of that, when we speak of the canon of Scripture, we're not only speaking of the fact that the Scripture is what we measure ourselves against, but we're thinking of a list of books that are in that approved list of books. All right? Let me say it a different way. When we use this word to refer to the canon of Scripture, we mean two things. We mean there is a list of books which are acknowledged to be inspired by God. If a book's in the canon, we're saying it's in the list. It's in the list. And because it's in the list, secondly, we're saying those books that are in the list are the yardstick, the ruler against which we measure what we believe and how we live. That's the canon of Scripture. Now, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, there was already a definitive list of books that were accepted as having been breathed out by God. Did you know that? It was clear, defined. There was a canon. There was a, an accepted list. So what are those books? Well, the books in the Jewish canon of the first century contained exactly the same content that is in our English Old Testament today, although the Jews counted the books differently. We have 39 books It varied. Sometimes they had 22 books, sometimes 24 books, based on how they combined books. For example, they combined 1st and 2nd Samuel into one book. They combined 1st and 2nd Kings into one book. 1st and 2nd Chronicles, actually the Kings and Chronicles were sometimes together. Ezra and Nehemiah they combined in one book. And the 12 minor prophets, minor not because they're unimportant, but minor because they're short, those 12 short prophecies at the end of our Old Testament, they combined into one book. 
So they ended up with a different number of books, but here's what I want you to understand. The same content. In fact, this Old Testament canon was considered as completely settled by the time of Jesus Christ. There was no question about whether or not a book was in the canon, the list of accepted, inspired books. By the way, this is the common view even of Jewish scholarship. There are two Jewish scholars, one dating to the 12th century, another to the 15th century, one by the name of David Kimchi, the other Elias Levita, both recognized, I should say, academics and scholars, they both taught that the final collection of the Old Testament canon, that list of books, was finished by the time of Ezra and the great synagogue, 400 years before Christ. Josephus, the Jewish commander who was captured and later became a friend of Rome, wrote a history of the Jewish nation. He wrote in the middle of the first century, He lists the same content that are in the books in our Old Testament. And he argues that that canon, that list, was completed during the life of Ezra. Makes sense when you think about it, doesn't it? I mean, Ezra was a likely candidate for several reasons. He was a scribe. He studied, remember, the law so that he could teach it in Israel. He probably not only wrote the book that bears his name, Ezra, but he probably also wrote Nehemiah, which was mostly pulled from Nehemiah's personal journals. But they, in the Jewish Bible, they were combined. One book, Ezra Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi were all contemporaries. Jewish tradition says that Ezra and Malachi were part of the great synagogue that collected the Scripture, preserved the Scripture, and even affirmed the final canon of the Old Testament 400 years before Jesus. The Old Testament canon, the list of books accepted as inspired, was closed by 400 B.C. Now, when you come to the New Testament what we call the New Testament. Those books written by the apostles are those who were friends of the apostles under their auspices. When they refer to what we call the Old Testament, they refer to it in one of three ways. They don't call it the Old Testament. That's our title. They call it, first of all, they call it the law. The law. Sometimes that expression is used not for just the first five books, but for the whole Old Testament. For example, in John 10, verse 34 John 12, verse 34. The writer quotes from Psalms and calls it the law. In 1 Corinthians 14, 21, Paul quotes from Isaiah and calls it the law. So sometimes it was just called the law. That's the Old Testament. Other times, as here in Matthew 5, it was called the law and the prophets. Jesus does this again, by the way, over in chapter 7, verse 12, when he ends the the body of his sermon. You remember I read this to you. This is the law and the prophets. But look over at Matthew 22. Matthew 22 and verse 40 After Jesus is asked, what are the great commandments? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. He says this in verse 40 of Matthew 22. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. There it is. 
It's the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets. But there's one other way there the Old Testament is referred to in our New Testament. Jesus himself does it in Luke 24, verse 44. You don't need to turn there, but he calls the Old Testament the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So, what I want you to see, though, is this. During Jesus' lifetime, the exact books that are identified as the Old Testament in the Bible you hold this morning were considered to be the inspired scriptures. It was settled, done, finished. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, What Your View of Scripture Says About You. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. What does the Bible say about church membership? In Tom Pennington's book, Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member, he identifies three non-negotiable hallmarks that should characterize every church member. Tom will challenge you to assess your own church membership to determine if you're meeting those hallmarks, not only for the health of your church, but for the glory of the one who gave his life for it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Purchase your copy of Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music